So good evening. I want to congratulate you for making it through two days now. Sometimes we think the first day is the hardest, and sometimes actually the second day is even harder. (laughs) And if that's been the case, I hope that it gets easier, and it probably will. When we sign up for a retreat, we usually imagine all of the positive, glowing, blissful, peaceful, radiant states of mind that we're going to encounter and dwell in and radiate love to all beings everywhere for seven days straight. And we forget that we have knees and backs and legs and body pain and aches and heartache and a mind that's meanders and wanders and drifts and will do anything but stay in the present. Even if we've done a lot of retreats, we forget that. If we remembered that, we probably wouldn't sign up so eagerly. (laughs) But time is good for making the difficult recede. And here we are again, sitting on our cushions. So I think it's important to appreciate the work that you do to show up. It's a long day of sitting and walking and facing ourselves very nakedly and looking at our heart and what obscures presence and loving kindness. I remember, I think it was last year I was here or the year before, there was a woman who said, you know, I'd rather be at work. (laughs) This is so hard. (laughs) I'd rather be back at the office. And I'm sure you've had all kinds of fantasies about where you'd like to be, like the Caribbean or Hawaii or somewhere. And here we are. There's a a phrase that Thich Nhat Hanh uses I like very much that goes something like, he said, Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. And I think that really encapsulates an aspect of the Buddhist teaching, that it's a very pragmatic approach to being human, living and finding a way to discover happiness and well-being. It's a very practical teaching through the practices of mindfulness, and as we're doing here, the practice of metta. And in this light, I see wisdom as a, I see metta as a wisdom practice, the wisdom of how to live well, how to live happily. When we're dwelling in these divine abodes that Sharon talked about yesterday, love, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, we feel a great sense of well-being, ease, Happiness it brightens our heart. It brightens the, the, the world around us. Sometimes I think about the radiance that someone like the Dalai Lama has, who clearly uh, is very steeped in the, in the practice of loving kindness, compassion, and the, the, the aura that, that's created around him through the power of his practice.
What I like to remember when I do meta practice and I like to remind people is the good news is that what we're cultivating, what we're developing is innate to our own hearts, innate to our own being. We're not developing something from outside that's foreign, that's alien, that we've never encountered. The quality of love, the quality of kindness, the quality of care is very natural. It's within all of us. And yes, definitely it gets obscured, it gets hindered in different ways, but it's there. It's in each and every one of you. There's a Far Side cartoon I like very much. It's a picture of Satan. He's happily at home in hell, and uh, he's greeting the new arrivals. He's just coming out of his fiery cavern, and he's shouting, Mom, no! And there's a picture of um, his mom and greeting the new inmates, and underneath the cartoon it says, Despite his repeated efforts to explain things to his mom, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> and she's got a little tray, you know, cookies and milk, and, Mom, no! <laughs> so we all have that basic instinct <laughs> to offer cookies and milk to the accursed, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. You know, the world doesn't function without a very simple uh, level of kindness. We hold doors open for each other, we take care of each other, we call our friends if they're sick or having a hard time. Uh, you know, if a child's hurting, we comfort them. It's a very instinctual, inbuilt response to want to care, to connect, to, to take care. I remember Yogi, I think it was at Spirit Rock, this last retreat I taught uh, in January. She said, I wanted to take everybody home with me at the end of the retreat. It was just a natural desire to connect in that way. One of, the re- one of the reasons I like to teach meta retreats at Spirit Rock is we have a lot of deer and uh, turkeys and all kinds of wildlife that walk through, and it's such a easy way to access that beautiful connection and care. You know, when you see a, a mother and a fawn walking by, and the fawn's all spotted and you know two or three months old, the heart just blooms, and it's very natural. You know, I think often in nature. Um, it's why I do so much my practice and teaching in nature is that it's a very easy way to access that love, that connection. Hafiz says, we are people who need to love because love is the soul's life. Love is simply creation's greatest joy. We are creatures who need to love. And when we don't have that channel, something happens to the heart. It, 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 gets, it gets hardened. We need to... It's like a muscle that needs to be uh, used. Otherwise, it ossifies in a little bit. So one thing that's important to remember when doing metta practice, as you know, it's a concentration practice, and as you've seen, it takes a lot of effort to maintain that, that level of concentration. And with concentration practices, uh, there's a certain level of purification that happens. When we're cultivating love and kindness, what begins to happen is we begin to see all, it brings up all the obstacles. It brings up anything that's getting in the way of our heart naturally caring or reaching out or connecting. So um, if today has been a day of uh, having just fleeting moments of metta, 
fleeting moments of connecting with this sense of wishing a friendliness and, and well-wishing to yourself or to your benefactor or to people around you, know that that's not unusual. That partly the point of the practice is to, um, it's like a, we're sort of panning for gold. And so we have to pan through a lot of silt and rock and stones to find the nuggets of jewels. We, we, you know, it's like the, the metaphor that I like to use is, um, you know, our hearts are like the sky, radiant, blue, deep, ever-present, but they're mostly clouded, mostly surrounded by storms and weather, and that the practice is learning how to see through the clouds, to see through that the sky is always shining, to remember. And like any practice, whether it's a practice of mindfulness, where we, spa- where we pay attention to an object and then space out, pay attention to the breath, get lost in thought, the same with metta practice. We pay attention to the phrases, to the people we're sending metta to, and then we space out, we forget. We get caught in hostility or resentment or anger or jealousy or numbness or self-hatred or self-criticism. And then we remember. And it's a... Tuk Ogun, a great Tibetan teacher, once said, mindfulness is easy, remembering to be mindful is difficult. It's the same with metta. Once we remember to turn the heart towards kindness, it's actually not so difficult. But remembering to sustain that is the practice. And that's why with the use of the phrases, with the concentration, there's a sense of continuity that builds. I'll read this. Um, Some of you may know this. It's it's called The Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. And it um, speaks to the way that we um, remember and then forget, wonder what we're doing in the same place, caught in the same habit, in the same uh, stuck places. We we come out of them, and then we we, we fall in them again. Anybody had that today where you feel like you keep getting caught in ruts or in old places of dullness, self-hatred, whatever the particular flavor you have. It goes like this. Chapter 1, I walk down the street and there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2, I walk down the same street and there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it still isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Sound familiar? Chapter 3, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault, and I get out immediately. I think that's actually one of the main places we are in practice. We see the hole, whatever it is longing, aversion, resistance, checking out. We fall in. Oh, there I go again. I'm in resistance. I'm in aversion. And that's also a very fruitful part of practice because it's the, it's the awareness of that that finally leads to the transformation of that habit. Chapter 4, I walked down the same street. There was a deep hole in the sidewalk. 
I walk around it. Chapter 5, I walk down a different street. So we learn, but we learn slowly, and practice is slow. A friend of mine added a a sixth chapter to this, which is, I go back to the, the street and I fix the hole. That's kind of the engaged Buddhist, you know, response. So another way that you can see metta as a purification practice is it sets a very high standards. Dharma teachings, teachings of the Buddha set very high standards for what it means to be human, for our potential, for our capacity. The ideal, the, this, this, this value of uh, this capacity to wish love and kindness unconditionally to all beings is a really beautiful human ideal, and, and it's possible to have an unconditional love and regard for all of life. And as we've seen, it's hard to maintain that. Um, the Buddha says, with a, you know, with a boundless heart, we should cherish all beings in the Metta Sutta. And in one of the suttas that I find somewhat amusing in its daunting um, aspiration in the simile of the saw, he's explaining the power of metta practice should be should become such that if bandits were to, you know, um, um, saw us limb from limb, we would still maintain the practice of metta towards the people who are sawing our limbs off. I don't know about your meta practice. Mine's not quite there yet. <laughs> and we start where we are. We start with a very simple attitude of meeting each moment as much as we can, each experience, with kindness. And I see meta, meta as an attitude in which we greet ourselves, we greet each other, we greet each thing that's happening in our experience with an attitude of kindness. So this evening I want to talk about some of the things that you may have been encountering today or may encounter in the days ahead, some of the obstacles and hindrances to the cultivation of metta. I think the thing that I notice the most when I work with people either individually or on retreat that interferes with a a very general positive self-regard is the the role of the critic, the role of the judge, the role of the the inner tyrant, or whatever you like to call it, uh, the way that we talk to ourselves, the way that we berate ourselves, the way that we um, imply, apply impossibly high standards through which we consistently fail because they're unreasonable. Um, one, it's one of the things that is, is such a common thread in our minds that we often don't see it. It's become so habituated and so ordinary. And we can see it partly by the, by the tone of our, of our thoughts, either the tone of our notes, the way we make a notation to ourselves, or just the way we talk to ourselves. So maybe you're reflecting on how you may have been thinking about your meta practice today. Now, how do you, how do, what, do you, what do you say to yourself? Well, that was pathetic. You call that meta? You must have had like two seconds of meta that whole sitting. That wasn't really meta. I know what you really like. I know you don't like people very much. I know what you did to so-and-so last week. 
I know what you really think about that person. You say that they're your benefactor, but I know really. It's a voice that's very undermining, very doubting of our goodness. It's very happy to fixate on the negative. As I said, it, 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 it gives us impossible standards uh, to live up to. And of course, the standards are so high, we often fail. We often don't live up to them. What we don't notice is how we ally with the critic. We, with the, the critics become so habituated that we think it's the voice of reason, the voice of wisdom. And we give it a lot of authority and a lot of power. And it's really just a thought stream. It's a view. It's a point of view that's subjective and mostly, in my experience, very inaccurate. There's a cartoon that expresses some of um, the ways that the critic operates. It's called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic, which is an appropriate description for describing the critic because that's one of the things it likes to make us do is feel small. So the cartoon, the six... um, cartoons, and the the first one goes, choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. That really helps the self-meta practice, that one. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And there's a picture of a woman, she's getting a compliment. Hey, you look great. She's thinking, don't patronize me. <laughs> and lastly, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. Sound familiar? It's really good to laugh. You know, it's really good to have a sense of humor about our minds, isn't it? Because our minds do the funniest things. And they'll say, oh, you worked really hard today. You can have seconds of cookies. And then when, when we've eaten our third, then when we're lying down for a nap after lunch, the mind's like, you're such a glutton. I can't believe you took three. There were several people who didn't even get two or one. You know, it's the, the critic is damned if we do, damned if we don't. And really the critic often is expressing uh, the hindrance of aversion, of hatred in some form or other. When I started practice, I think I mentioned the other day, my critic was very strong. I hadn't noticed, you know, I hadn't gotten the space to see it until I started meditating. And I realized, wow, the way I talked to myself was very harsh, very judgmental, very cruel in some ways, very negative. I look at my journals from from those years and I I cringe at how how bitter I was towards myself. And... um, I think there's two ways to work with the critic uh, fundamentally. One, one is th- through working with it directly, and I'll say a little about that in a moment. But I think the, the second way is to, is to do meta practice. The meta practice and the, the saying of these phrases is a direct, it's laying, I think, very, very wholesome grooves in the mind, wholesome channels. The critic uh, has left very deep uh, negative grooves that we slip into very habitually. And the thing that transformed uh, the, the impact of the critic for me was I, when I f- slowly began to let in the pain of how, 
how painful it was to be on the receiving end of those judgments. I was sitting, I remember sitting, I was outside uh, one day and I was doing some metta practice and I began to feel in my heart the, the impact. It was like little arrows going in. Oh, you're not good enough. Oh, you're unworthy. You'll never get anywhere. You're so untogether. And just, you know, you can, we can feel that. It, there's some resonance. There's some reverberation in our bodies and, and, and I felt it in my heart. And when I got that, I was like, ow, like... This, this is horrible. I don't want to be doing this to myself anymore. But, and it was only through letting the pain of it in that, I, that some compassion came and some ability to take, to, go, to take some space from it. Sometimes it's just as simple, just to, you know, that when, when we hear that voice, just to say, oh, thank you for your opinion. Goodbye. That's very interesting. I'm not interested. Well, sometimes we can just say enough, stop. You know, we have that capacity in the mind to uh, have some power over the relentlessness of our thoughts. Another obstacle is just the simple quality of aversion or lack of self-acceptance, self-hatred towards ourselves. ways that we treat ourselves unkindly. And sometimes, as I said, with the critic, it's through mentally with, with, with self-hatred. Sometimes we, it's the ways that we move in the world, the ways that we push ourselves, the way that we deny our body, the way that we don't take care of ourselves, the way that we're harsh and cruel with our actions. So notice in any, in any, in any, as you go through the day, if there's a way that you push yourself or punish yourself, or express some form of aversion. And again, one of the keys to unlocking that is to, is to notice what it feels like when we're, when we're treating ourselves with harshness, with severity, with cruelty, with, with a sense of punishment. It's only through letting the reality of that, is of feeling the suffering, that there's some room for change. One of the things the metta practice does is can often reveal the chasm between how we could treat ourselves, how, how we could be uh, uh, relating to ourselves with kindness, with care, with, with a natural sense of positive regard, and the actual reality. And sometimes it's very sobering to see, oh, it's, you know, we spent the last day sending metta to myself and to the benefactor. And when I, when, I, when I wish it for myself, I feel completely numb. I just feel blank. It feels dull. I feel bored. My mind checks out. And there seems to be no way to penetrate the sense of frozenness or numbness. And sometimes that can be surprising. We may think that we, we take care of ourselves and our lives. But when we actually do this very direct practice, we see, oh, there's actually a lot of ways that I'm res- I resist treating myself kindly, holding myself kindly. And I want to read something from Francoise Fenelon from the 16th century, which I think speaks to this, uh, very much applies to mindfulness practice, but I think also applies to meta practice, how these practices... Um, 
can sometimes in the beginning painfully reveal uh, the shadow or the or the what's what's blocking these qualities. He says, as light in- increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful thoughts and feelings. We could never have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter, and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So I find that very sobering, but also very heartening, that through doing these practices, we get to see in, in, in sharp relief, oh, look at the way I treat myself. We get to see, uh, you know, we get to see the, the lay of the land. But it also is the beginning of the transformation, because in darkness, there's no, there's no hope of change. When we shine the light on, it may be challenging to see oh, how difficult and a struggle it seems, and yet that's where the beginning, the transformation is possible. So another aspect of um, aversion or this unkind attitude to ourselves is the way that we uh, focus on our faults or our deficiencies or what's wrong with us, you know, what's, n- what's not right. I'm curious if anybody's noticed that today. Anybody be focusing on what's not quite right about you, what's not perfect, what's not complete, what's not whole. You know, we have a mind that's, that's often askewed that sees things somewhat distorted. And so no wonder we don't so feel, feel so good about ourselves if, all, if our lens is mainly focused on what's wrong. And one of the powerful aspects of metta practice is um, what's known as the proximate cause. One of the proximate causes for metta is reflecting on the goodness and the good qualities of the person that we're wishing metta for. So starting with ourselves, often what I'll do in my practice is before I wish metta for myself, I'll just reflect on my good qualities. And when I wish for somebody else, I'll take a moment to reflect on what it is I like about them, what it is, how I resonate with their goodness and their good qualities. And it's much easier once we've turned our our lens of attention to someone's goodness and their good qualities to feel a sense of warmth or goodwill or kindness, even if even if they're if we're finding them uh, even if they're a difficult person we can still find a way to see someone's goodness. Or just the primal wish to be happy. I remember when I think some Western Dharma teachers had a conference with the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala. I think it was there, maybe over here. And somebody was reporting to them and what reporting to him about their experience of self hatred and not liking themselves or respecting themselves and um, and I've heard this story in, in, in different ways that he um, was quite adamant that that was wrong that that was a wrong view that that was a really just an, a fundamentally incorrect way of perceiving oneself that was very unwholesome 
Um, and I know many Tibetan teachers, when they first came over here, had found it difficult to understand why we don't have that basic self, self-regard, self-care, self-respect. One of the things that I've enjoyed about in my journey is um, studying with various teachers. Um, and one of the things I've noticed, particularly studying in Asia with several teachers, one of the things that I've most appreciated about this, about being in the presence of um, some awakened teachers is feeling um, that very profound, unconditional love and, and regard. That, that to me, it was one of the ways that I really understood the power of the practice and the power of metta, being around uh, some of my teachers that I that I sensed were quite free, and were able to emanate or radiate that quality. And, and I just noticed what effect it had on my own way of perceiving myself. Because, you know, when we're around people who see clearly, they see our innate goodness, our innate capacity, our Buddha nature. So one of the questions that that's meta practice asks of us is how would it be to hold ourselves with unconditional self-regard? How would it be to love ourselves, to really be kind to ourselves? How would it be to live with that positive self-regard? This is a poem from someone I know from retreats in New Mexico who um, had a very, very traumatic childhood. She grew up in a ritualistic cult for the first maybe 12 years of her life. Very, very difficult conditioning and um, did years and years of meta practice. And this was one of the things that grew out of that. Drink. Drink until you are swollen with the nectar of self-nurturing, beauty and love. Fill yourself with amazement and marvel at the wonder of who you are. Drink, drink the juice of metta, for you, for no one else, for your own beauty and love. Drink until you are so full it spills from you, freely and gracefully. Drink until you are the nectar, the juice, until you are embodied heart and soul. Then you will be love itself. So I love that poem. It speaks of someone who's really done that work and, and, and fill themselves up inside with this, this grace of self-regard. And then it naturally begins to spill over, naturally begins to radiate outward. Oscar Wilde once wrote, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. To love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. When uh, I was studying with my teacher's Punjaji, and people would ask him about marriage, he would say, marry the one that never leaves you. Marry the one that never leaves you. And Walt, Walt Whitman wrote, And as to me, I know of nothing else but miracles. And as to me, I know of nothing else but miracles. How would it be to have a heart so full and see 
our beauty so clearly that we saw nothing but miracles, which is really what's true. We are all each amazing, unique, divine, unrepeatable, precious human beings. How would it be to see that, to see the, the goodness? Imagine you were seeing yourselves as a, as a newborn baby and how miraculous that is. And sometimes we, we instruct teaching you know, when, when, when sending wishing metta for yourself is difficult to imagine yourself as a young baby or a child as a way of connecting with um, a part of you that may feel sweeter and more pure, perhaps more true. Suzuki Roshi once said, you are completely perfect just as you are. You are completely perfect just as you are. And then he said, and we could all do with a little improvement. (laughs) But he first said, you are completely perfect just as you are. Not improve yourselves a little bit and then you'll be perfect. That's a very different paradigm to hold. We're fine, complete, just as we are. And yes, there's always room to cultivate qualities, etc. So we have um, aversion to ourselves. We also, of course, naturally the aversion spills outwards. What we don't like in ourselves, what we judge in ourselves, what we resist in ourselves. Guess what? When other people embody those qualities, we have the same aversion, the same resistance. We, we <coughs> don't like what gets triggered in us. And we can have aversion and resistance to the slightest things. And here we are on a loving-kindness retreat. And um, as I've done many meta retreats before, you know, sending, may all beings be well, may I be happy, may you be happy. And someone's breathing very loudly next to us. And we want to kill them. <laughs> or we get jealous because someone looks like they're... Um, doing really well, envious. You know, it's just remarkable the, the different ways that we can close our hearts. I was doing a long meta retreat some years ago here and I was with a friend from England and <coughs> I could just tell she was having a great retreat and I was just so jealous. <laughs> I felt like the more meta she got, the less would be there for me. And so the more that we open, the more that we heal, the more that we can find a place of self-acceptance and kindness, the more we have the capacity to hold that for others. It's a very simple equation. I was on a retreat here, a long retreat, um, with another friend of mine from Canada. And i uh, known her for many years uh, from practicing in India. And... Um, but always had a little place that was closed because she, she had such a lot of suffering and I, I couldn't quite open to the level of suffering she was going through. And then I had this long retreat where I sort of went through the fire of a really long, painful, suffering retreat. My heart kind of got blown open with that, with compassion for myself. And, and at the end of the retreat, as, as we were talking afterwards, I realized that all my 
blocks or resistance to her had, had dropped. There's, there's, because the way that I'd completely opened to my own pain, I could open to hers. And there's a phrase that I would like. It says, be kind to every person you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. Sometimes I think if we knew each other's histories, knew the sorrows and the pains and the burdens that we've all been asked to carry in this life, that we, wouldn't, we would just drop instantly those petty grudges and niggles and resistance and irritations. But we, we, we get caught in just the superficial veneer at the moment. What's wonderful about metta practice is it helps dissolve the sense of separation, the sense of me against the world. I'm, you know, I'm sort of in competition with the rest of life. It can help soften that sense of boundary, the sense of um, sense of isolation that we often carry around. My favorite practice to favorite place to practice metta is when I'm driving. Uh, I drive a lot in the Bay Area. I get caught in traffic a lot, and um, it's always a good indicator for what's happening in my metta practice. Uh, usually, I get caught. And I hit traffic. And I'm often cutting it close with timing. And tra- oh no, traffic! I'm going to be late. What are all these people doing here? Why don't they drive another time? Don't they realize I've got to get somewhere? And you know, seeing people as obstacles, I'm separate, they're in my way. And then, of course, as I slow down and get in, especially if it's in stop traffic, get time to look around, look through the windows, like, oh, they look really upset. He looks really angry and frustrated. She looks really tired after a long day from work. And I get to connect. I was like, oh, yeah, they're people, just like me, trying to get to where I'm going or where they're going. And then, then I start to do meta practice. Oh, may you get to where you're going on time. May you be less tired. May you be less angry. May you be, may you be at ease in this traffic, which happens every day in certain directions where I live. So the meta can soften that sense of separation. Same as if we're walking around here and we're in the lunch line or we're in the um, cookie line and there's three cookies on the back table and there's five people ahead of you. In that sense, oh no, what about me? You know, I don't care about them, what about my cookie? You know? And the meta can help soften that sense of, it's all about me. May we all get cookies. <laughs> May we all eat. May we all be happy. <laughs> So the important thing with um, with hindrances, and I've talked a lot about aversion this evening, I'll, and I'll, I'll say a little about the other hindrances. Uh, and I, I focus on aversion because I think it's one of the primary uh, things that comes up when we're doing metta practice. When we see the hindrance as a hindrance, when we see aversion or self-hatred or the critic or competition or whatever it is operating, in that moment, it's no longer a hindrance because it's, it's being held in awareness. With the metta practice in general, 
the instruction is to, when we notice something is happening that's pulling our attention away, we notice it and then come back to the practice, come back to the, the phrases. Notice the thoughts, notice the feelings, come back to the, come back to the phrases. So we're developing this sense of continuity of concentration. And I, I find that particularly valuable because it, it can train us in the understanding that no matter what is going on, we can still come back to this very positive force in the mind. And there are times when those forces, those hindrances, are too strong and it's, a, it's completely appropriate to let go of the phrases and just fully feel sense into whatever's happening, whatever difficult emotion, sadness, grief, loss, whatever's being triggered, feel that, be with that with a kind awareness, and as it passes, come back to the practice. What makes metta distinctive from our ordinary, from the cultural um, idea of what love is, is it's unconditional. when we begin wishing this quality for others, for the benefactor, and particularly we'll, tomorrow we'll begin uh, wishing it for a dear friend, we begin to see more subtle obstacles. One of, the, one of the subtle obstacles, or what's called a near enemy to metta, is a quality of love that has attachment in it that has some condition on it. So we, you may find yourself spending time with a certain person and we're wishing them well and we're wishing them happiness and then the thought arises, but you know, I wish they would change that. You know, I wish they would just fix that thing that they do. You know, I wish they would get over that little petty thing that they've got going on. Or um, you know, when it gets closer to home, when we do it too, Loved ones, family, partners, may be well, may be happy. May you, you know, pick up your pick up your stuff when you're in the house. You know, may you actually say what you do, what you're gonna say, what you do, what you're gonna say, what you. <laughs> that whatever that is. <laughs> may you follow through with things that you say you're gonna do. <laughs> so we begin to notice the different the different ways that. There's a genuine wish, and then there's also a little, there's a little seed of, that's great, and I want this to happen too. I'll love you, and. You know, in our culture, I think love is often talked about as a trade. You know, I'll love you if you love me, and if you love me more, I'll love you more. And, um, and this quality of metta is very free. It's very generous. It's very open. It, it comes without strings which is make, makes it distinctive. I'm becoming, I think I was coming to this retreat last year, oh, two years ago, and it was around Valentine's Day. It was just before Valentine's Day, and there was an ad on the radio that said, um, give your sweetie, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a cosmetic surgery ad. And it was, <laughs> give, give your sweetie the gift for Valentine's or, you know, voucher for surgery. <laughs> I'm thinking, <laughs> this isn't exactly meta. <laughs> so 
So we have, I, my dry cleaners has on the front door, it says, um, we love our customers. And I always think, how much will they love me if I go to the dry cleaners down the road and not them? You know? So this quality of uh, this near enemy of matter um, is useful just to pay attention to when it creeps in, when it shifts from being just a pure wish for somebody to a wish with, a, with some kind of desire in it. Or you may notice the, the force of desire in a more general way. My matter should, be be- should be better. I should be better. This retreat should be different. It should be more exciting. It should be more interesting. The food should be like this. And the zaffirs should be bigger. And the room should be painted a different color. And Notice when that comes up. The wanting mind is a very powerful force in the mind, as you know. It very easily takes us away. When we're, especially when we're the the trick with with meta practice is because we're using um, visualization to some degree and phrases, it's very easy to get discursive, as Sharon talked about this morning. Very easy for that discursivity to move into desire, to move into wanting, to feeling bored or restless or irritated, or the practice has gone dry. Oh, I'll think about something. I wonder what's for lunch. You know, we had tofu yesterday. I hope it's something different today. Uh, what's for tea? The mind just creates some kind of fantasy, some story. Or we start thinking about the people that we're wishing metaphor. Oh, I wonder how so-and-so's doing. You know? I hope they're... And we get into some kind of fantasy, some desire about them. What's profound about metta practice is it's asking us if we can just be with this experience as it is. Meet this with unconditional acceptance and kindness. Even if we don't like it, even if we think it should be different. And that's a very profound practice. That's where the metta becomes a wisdom practice. Can we meet this experience just as it is, even if I don't like it? You may also notice with the force of desire how metta can easily lead into fantasy, into lust, into sexual fantasy. Another way that the mind likes to entertain itself. Now this is getting boring. I'll whip up a little fantasy. Often a common hindrance for people doing, doing metta practice. So today is day two the second full day, and I know for a lot of people um, there's still a lot of sleepiness and dullness and fogginess. Um, often it takes a few days, as we've said, to arrive to, for, the, for our bodies to become more subtly attuned, for our energy to pick up. And we often arrive from our lives very tired, very exhausted. And so... The, the meta practice is inviting us to see if we can still maintain a sense of kind, warm, gentle awareness, even when we're tired. You know, sometimes I find it very interesting to practice when the hindrance of sloth is around because there can be a sweetness in the dreaminess, a sweetness in the, the low energy. Often we're very attached to clarity, and brightness, 
And sometimes that's just not available. Sometimes the energy is low. We go through different waves in the day. So see when, when the energy is low, there's, there's, there's ways that we can stimulate our energy. But there's also ways to settle into and be okay with whatever energy is, is present in the moment. You know, I think one of the challenges with the practice is because we're using phrases and because it's very repetitious, the phrases can, can get dry. We can feel really bored. Uh, meta shmeta, may you be well, may you be blah, blah, blah. Who cares after a while? And it's, it can, we can easily mistake the practice for cranking out like a, like a factory. You know, if I, well, if I crank out 2,000 metaphrases a day, I'm sure I'm doing the practice well. And for me, that's a surefire way to lead to boredom, sleepiness, and dullness. So I found it very useful to, just as we might increase our energy with mindfulness through really paying, really trying to bring a precise attention to the breath, with the phrases, what I found really useful is to um, to say the phrases very slowly, very meaningfully, very genuine. Each phrase has a certain genuineness to it. There may not be any feeling, any, any sense connected with that, but there's a sense of, I'm really fully behind each phrase. It's one way of uh, generating energy. The nice thing about meta practice is there's an encouragement to do whatever's easiest, to do whatever helps gladden the heart and to connect with this, 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 this wish, this benevolent force. So when we're tired, you know, if you're walking, you can walk outside, you can freeze, but it will stimulate your energy. Um, let the brightness of the sun come in. Walk more quickly. Walk, walk in, in, in a place that's, that's uplifting and aesthetic for you. You know, it's not cheating to do whatever's easiest. Sometimes we think that that's kind of a cop-out. But with meta practice, it really, we're encouraging you to do whatever supports the practice. Another thing that I sometimes do is I call someone to mind, uh, often it's a benefactor, uh, someone who really inspires me, who brings a certain gladness to my heart. So um, sometimes I will bring in a different person, like a a second benefactor. Um, It's fine to be creative with the practice, to especially times when it feels dry or dull. I'm not saying that we change everything every five minutes just because we don't like what's happening, but there's a way to, um, to be creative. You might know when you're um, feeling sleepy and slothful when your phrases start to go a little funny. Or you notice your phrases get a little funky. I made a list once of all my phrases, and somebody sent me their list. So some of mine that have been probably during the afternoons when I'm usually pretty sleepy. May you be hippie. 
may you be fleeceful and sloppy. May you be tired and sleepy. I don't know where that one came from. May I be contained and freeze. I must have been sitting here. May I be nappy. May I be long and gone. (laughs) May you be happy and sappy. (laughs) So when you know your phrases are going off like that, it's a sign that the energy is low. You might need to open your eyes, sit upright, take some breaths, stimulate your nervous system. Please don't use them as... uh, So I think I've talked I've talked plenty long tonight. So um, there's a couple of other hindrances which you probably notice, and I'll say a little about those tomorrow morning. The, the hindrance of restlessness, which is the, the sort of opposite pole of of sleepiness, agitation, physical agitation, mental restlessness, thinking, spinning, and also the hindrance of doubt, um, self doubt primarily, often comes through the critic, but also also has its own quality of doubting oneself, doubting the practice, doubting the retreat, doubting the teachers, doubting the tradition. So just to summarize, and I want to sort of reiterate that when these obstacles, when these difficulties, when these hindrances arise, to not see them as a problem, not to see them see that you're doing something wrong, they're in the natural arising of the practice. There, we're uncovering the different ways that the heart becomes obscured, becomes blocked, becomes numb, becomes frozen in different ways. And so there's a power to seeing them understanding them, to understanding the causes sometimes, and to letting them go. And we come back again and again to the meta-wish. And to remember that we will continue, realistically, to get lost and resurface, get to get lost and resurface, that that is part of the practice. And to, to extend that, that wish of kindness to the hindrances themselves, when we're caught in aversion and sloth and restlessness, can we meet that experience, that difficulty, with the same open-hearted kindness that we're wishing for ourselves and our benefactor? And to remember that no matter how many obscurations come, how many difficulties arise, that we're, we're engaging in a purification practice, that the... the um, the sunlight of our heart, of love and kindness, isn't obscured, isn't, isn't, doesn't disappear because of the force of the storms that are currently playing themselves out. That the storms come, the storms go, and we reconnect. So let's sit for a few moments.
And some words from Rumi. Come, come, come whoever you are, wanderer, worshipper, lover of leaving. It doesn't matter. Ours is not a caravan of despair. Come even if you've broken your vow a thousand times. Come yet again, come. So, give your attention. We'll have some walking and sitting and chanting at nine o'clock. Thank you. <laughs> 